The trial against Quentin Tallis in the murder of Jessica Chambers was set for October 9th, 2017. That's about 19 and a half months after he was first charged in February of 2016. You have to wonder if the fact that they had to outsource the jurors from 250 miles away. You have to wonder if that had something to do with just how long it took the case to finally be heard in a courthouse. It was clear that the jurors couldn't possibly be from Cortland or Panola County itself, so instead, the legal teams turned to Pike County, Mississippi. The jurors were selected. They went through a grueling vetting process, mainly because of how concerned Quinton's legal team was about how tainted opinions might be because of the rabid social media coverage of the case. In the end, the 12 were selected. Seven men five women, and it was a split divide between black and white amongst the 12. And on October 9th, 2017, the trial began at the courthouse in Batesville, presided over by the Honorable Judge Gerald Chatham. The prosecution's interpretation of what happened on December 6, 2014 was this. The state believed that something happened in Jessica's car that turned Quinton to violence, perhaps something during sex or an attempt to get sex, and he ended up suffocating Jessica in a fit of anger. Note, suffocating, not strangling. Prosecutors believed that, thinking Jessica was already dead, Quentin panicked and realized that he had to get Jessica away from his house, which is how he came to drive her car out to Heron Road, leave her there, walk to his sister's house back towards where he had come, take her car to his house, grab a gas can that he had already told investigators that he kept in his shed, drive back in his sister's car to where he had left Jessica, and proceed to douse her car and Jessica with gasoline before setting everything on fire. It was a plausible theory, one has to admit, if nothing else. There's some creativity there. It's a little shaky, but plausible. The defense had the mismatching stories from Quentin. They had his DNA on Jessica's keys. They had cell phone data, surveillance tapes. But they still had pretty massive hurdles to overcome. One in particular, the 15 to 17 different witnesses who claimed that they heard Jessica say, quote, clear as day, the name Eric on the night she died. The defense, a team composed of Darla Palmer and Alton Preston, they had their own hurdles and their own advantages as well. They had Quentin proclaiming his innocence from day one, the fact that he'd been a completely cooperative witness every time police came to him, the fact that he passed a polygraph, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's take it back to October 9th, 2017. Let's take it back to the trial itself, And let's discuss the physical evidence. The defense, they set the stage pretty elaborately for the jury right from the top by calling back almost every firefighter or EMT who had been on the scene that night to testify as to what they had seen happen to Jessica Chambers. Something I noticed when watching the testimony of these firefighters and EMTs was that almost every single one of them out and out cried, or at the very least, they teared up and got emotional while they were on the stand and reliving that night. All of them looked absolutely haunted as they recounted what they had seen. 
Several of them, they testified as to having had to leave the volunteer firefighter program because of how severely affected they were after the night of December 6th. Eddie Edison spoke of nightmares, the PTSD he has, and how that night seeped out into other aspects of his life, culminating in the divorce that he ultimately went through. Cole Healy, the first firefighter to reach Jessica as she stumbled out of the woods, he left the program entirely, and he's had to have extensive therapy to recover from his own experiences that night. A constant refrain from the firefighters was, quote, I wish I had never been there. The reality is that this entire community of Cortland, they felt the effects of what happened to Jessica that night. It was as the firefighters testified, though, that an as-yet-unreported detail came to light. Two firefighters shared that in the light of the burning car, quote, a middle-aged black man walked up to the scene. One firefighter testified, quote, I told him, hey man, you can't be here. This is a crime scene. The man apparently didn't say a word throughout the entire exchange, and he simply stared. The same firefighter recalled that, quote, he gave me a stare I've never seen before. He stared straight through me. Something just wasn't right about him. He seemed suspicious. And yet, no one followed him or gathered any other information about him. Instead, this man did as he had been told, and he walked away, strangely taking off the blue overshirt that he had on and revealing only a white t-shirt underneath as he walked off into the darkness without a single word. Apparently, in the chaos of the night, no one thought any more of it, even when writing it up in their reports after the fact. They just let that one go. And I have a lot to say about that, but we have other things to consider, like the crime scene itself. The night of Jessica's murder, Major Barry Thompson, the head of the Major Crimes Division, he was actually out of town. Instead, Detective Ed Dixon was the second in command, and he acted in Thompson's stead. Thompson, by all accounts and by his testimony, he was literally phoning in directives and orders to Dixon in his absence. Dixon claimed that when he arrived on the scene that night, he secured it, and he had photographs taken of the four pieces of evidence that they found around the burning hulk of metal that the car had been reduced to. Those pieces of evidence were Jessica's cell phone, the back of her cell phone, and two different lighters. There were also scraps of what was believed to be clothes found in the area. Now, I've mentioned how Jessica's car wasn't actually on the road the night that it was burned. It was up on a little hill, a little underbrush kind of area with a metal fence that the car had nosed up to away from the road. When questioned, Dixon admitted that, despite knowing Jessica had come out of the woods, no one had searched the area beyond the immediate surroundings of the car. He claimed that, quote, his crime scene was the burnt vehicle. And as far as he knew, no one even went beyond the other side of the fence that night to see what they could find. Interesting how the scene of the crime is supposed to be the car, but that same night, the car was actually moved to either the impound lot or police headquarters for further evaluation, disturbing and or losing who knows how much evidence. Again, 
Dixon chalked this decision up to the chaos of the scene. And he also blamed the heat, saying that any evidence beyond that what they'd already found would have been burned, and much of the evidence was burned. Take the clothes, for instance. And I say that with heavy quotation marks. A chemical analyst tested the scraps that were found at the scene and found that he couldn't even confirm that they had been clothes at all. The only thing that he could confirm was there the presence of gasoline was noted on whatever it was that was being tested. The analyst noted something else, though, too. Something interesting. Because outside of the scraps, most of the other tested items from the scene did not have gasoline on them. The presence or lack thereof of gasoline threw a wrench into the prosecution's theory because they had been dangling a particular gas can like a carrot in front of the jury's horse. During one of their interrogations with Quinton, investigators had learned that inside the little shed adjacent to the Tellus house, Quinton kept a five-gallon gas container for his own use. He had simply offered up this piece of information to police, and yet no one ever collected the gas can as a piece of evidence. Hell, according to one of Quinton's sisters, the shed itself was never even searched by police, despite them knowing that was where the gas tank was. For a crime that's supposed to have taken place by dousing someone in gasoline, why the hell wasn't the source of the gasoline ever investigated further as it lay untouched in a shed for so many months? So, already, we've got a lack of protocol being followed. And lack of protocol is actually a direct quote from Detective Tyler Mills. Detective Mills was called out to a local resident, Jerry King's house, on December 8th, after Jerry King had made a strange discovery while taking his one-year-old daughter out for a stroll on Main Street. Just about fourth of a mile from where Jessica's car had been located and two days after it had been burned, Jerry King found keys. He testified that the bundle of lanyard, a mini hand sanitizer, various fobs, and the keys caught his eye because in the grass it was, quote, a pink rope with something shiny sitting on the side of the road. He picked the keychain up, handed it to his baby daughter to play with, and carried on his way. When he arrived back home, his partner, Mary Tyner, saw the tag for Ben's auto on the keychain. Ben Chambers' auto and she immediately called it in to the police. This is where Detective Mills comes in, because this officer of the law was the one who came to collect the keys. Now, Jerry King and Mills knew each other pretty well. Jerry testified with a kind of embarrassed giggle that Mills had often, quote, pulled him over for something. Except pulled over isn't the right term for how Mills knew King, because Jerry King had a record, at least a 15-count long record, including offenses such as grand larceny, possession of drug paraphernalia, and indecent exposure. Just adding some context for you there, because on December 8th, Detective Mills also had Jerry King do him a favor. He had King show him where precisely he had found the keys, then he asked King to place the keys on the ground where he found them, and then Mills himself took photographs of it. 
This might not seem too dicey of a factor at first, but then consider how Detective Mills answered the question when asked by the defense if he had ever assisted on a homicide before. Quote, I've never collected evidence in a criminal investigation before. There was no set protocol followed. Friends, what we have here is accidental evidence tampering at best, and the staging of a crucial piece of evidence with the assistance of a disreputable community member who might be inclined to help police in order to get in their good graces at worst. Because besides the word of Jerry King, which our boy Eddie Idison, who happens to be his brother-in-law, says that he, quote, wouldn't put too much stock in since King isn't the type of person that you would put too much past, the word of Jerry King is the only proof that those keys were found in that location at all. And Eddie Idison might have been on to something with Jerry King and his shaky word. Because remember how he said on the stand that he gave his daughter the keys to play with during her stroll after he found them? That's not what he wrote in his affidavit on the day of the discovery. He claims that he put them simply in the bottom of his stroller, not wanting to get his own prints on them, and never once mentioned giving them to his daughter to play with. And it's interesting how this story changes because then it brings up one of the most crucial parts of the key discovery entirely. The DNA on them. These keys were the prosecution's, one of their smoking guns, so to speak. It was the piece of evidence that they claimed linked Quinton to the crime itself because they allegedly had his DNA on them. Catherine Rogers, a DNA expert who analyzed the keys and testified said, not quite though, because there wasn't just Quentin's DNA on them. There were four distinct DNA patterns found on the keys. I will say one person whose DNA was not on the keys, Derek Holmes, the sex offender who Quentin had suggested was stalking Jessica at the time of her death. However, what Catherine Rogers could testify to was that the DNA on the keys was not a match one way or another for Jerry King, he who had supposedly handled the keys. And that Quentin Tellis, quote, cannot be excluded as a contributor to the mixture of DNA found. AKA, they couldn't rule out Quentin as having handled the keys, but they also couldn't say for certain that he had. They also had no idea whatsoever who the other two DNA profiles found on the keys belonged to, despite police having taken DNA from everyone that Panola County Police had interviewed. These keys were supposed to have been that damning it factor, the thing that unquestionably implicated Quentin in Jessica's murder. Hell, they had told him that himself during investigations. All the Cortland community could see, though, was that the DNA evidence was underwhelming. The police had arguably mishandled the protocols from the jump, and that maybe Quentin didn't have any ties to the crime of Jessica's murder, beyond circumstantial ones. And if the, DN if the state of Mississippi didn't have any of that, then what did they have? As DA John Champion put it on day five of the trial, they had tapes, and they had towers. 
It was October 2015, so yeah, I'm taking you back for a second. Investigators assigned to Jessica Chambers' murder case were frustrated. They were stuck. And no one likes to admit when they're stuck, especially not when it comes to such a high-profile case like Jessica's. So, Panola County investigators, who were aided by Department of Justice Intelligence Analyst Paul Rowlett, they decided to take a step back. They decided to turn to the other evidence that they had on hand at the time. The digital evidence. Recall for a second that Monday of the week that Jessica would die. She had made a strange comment to her mother when she walked in their house that day. Mama, these bitches think I'm snitching. Now, we know that Jessica had gone through a rough patch before her time at the Christian Rehabilitation Center at Leah's house. It's been rumored that she was involved with local gangs, that she dabbled in drugs harder than weed, and that she'd been up to all sorts of unsavory activities. Hell, her friend Lakeisha Meyer, who was with Jessica on her last morning alive, she testified on the stand that Jessica, quote, sold weed every other day. However, when she returned from her time at Leah's house, the change in Jessica's disposition and her outlook, they were noticeable. And police wondered if they'd been noticeable changes that people in Cortland, that if they'd noticed and believed Jessica had changed from small-time dealer to small-town police informant. Now, the police have never out-and-out confirmed or denied whether Jessica was an informant, but Katie Baker from BuzzFeed spoke to Oxygen and said that there was, quote, never any evidence to support the idea that Jessica had become an informant for the police. Other friends of Jessica spoke out in her defense. One of them, Alicia Faulkner, she adamantly denied that Jessica was involved with gangs as an actual member, saying, quote, she was just a gang member's girlfriend. Jimmy Anthony, the head of Panola County's gang intelligence, he even said that while Jessica was known to hang out with one local gang in particular, the Vice Lords, she had never truly been on his radar more than that. And he stated that there was, quote, no directive, no order to kill her at the time of her death. But because police knew Jessica still had friendships, relationships, simply connections to gangs, they decided to start at the heart of where connections are kept in this modern day and age. The cops went through her cell phone. Police poured through Jessica's contact list as well as her social media, and they didn't find a single person named Eric or Derek in any of her address books, her, on her followers, or her friend list. But what they did find were the names of other dealers and other drug runners. And they used those names to kickstart a sting operation called Operation Bite Back, which eventually culminated in the arrest of of 17 big-time dealers, all from the local gangs of Vice Lords, Gangster Disciples, and Sib Mob. All these dealers were brought in after their arrest, and they were also questioned, questioned in connection to Jessica's death. One of the local dealers who is said to have been running the biggest drug trafficking ring in northern Mississippi at the time of Jessica's death was a man named DeMarcio Coleman, who preferred to be called Yayo or King Yayo. Yayo claims that police contacted every dealer in the area that they could get their hands on, and they presented them all with one question. Quote, this girl is dead, 
and somebody is fixing to go to prison for it. Do you know anything? Despite the lead that police thought they had with Jessica's phone, no one knew anything. Or at least they weren't saying anything. George Mister, aka Boone, he'd stated from the beginning of the investigation that, quote, if the black community knew who killed Jessica, we would have told police. At the time of Quinton's 2017 trial, Boone believed that Panola County had panicked from, quote, too much publicity from Jessica's case and that they had come up with somebody, anybody, just to file charges for the crime. King Yeo felt much the same. He spoke candidly with Oxygen for the documentary about Jessica's case, and he said that when he and others in the community heard that Quinton had been charged, they weren't buying it. He said that the group reaction was that of, quote, we doubted it, but okay, if that's who they're going to send to prison, then bye. He stated unequivocally that he did not believe Quentin had anything to do with Jessica's murder because, quote, he wasn't smart enough to pull it off. The boy can barely write. He elaborated and said that, quote, when something lingers in the state of Mississippi, though, the police just want to sweep it under the rug. With the stress that the police were feeling from their lack of leads, their ever-dwindling list of suspects, the clues that just weren't there, and the cell phone that wasn't giving them much, I can bet that their hands were twitching to grab those brooms and start fucking sweeping. By this time, with the amount of pressure and attention and scrutiny Panola County had come under, that tactic couldn't be used, though. King Yayo said that Dennis Darby, the sheriff of Panola County, he was a man you didn't, quote, mess with. And with John Champion being the DA of five counties in Mississippi, he was, quote, treated like a god. And the two combined were in no position to have their authority under such attack from the county, the country, and the world at large, all who were watching and waiting for justice for Jessica. Yayo said that he believes that Quinton was being set up to be the fall guy just to make everything go away, to quietly and calmly sweep things back under the rug into the formation that Darby and Champion wanted. Their backs were to the wall, and police were consorting with drug dealers for leads in one of the most notorious cases in the state's history. It's not hard to imagine the investigators were looking for anything, anything, to break a new lead for them, since the theory that Jessica had been murdered as a hit or in retaliation for a gang issue had come to such a dead end. However, Jessica's phone wasn't entirely useless. It was within her phone, that's where they started to find the tiny tears, the little inconsistencies that formed holes that they could wriggle into and find even more holes inside of the story of December 6, 2014. Because in October 2015, it became clear that Quentin hadn't been telling them the whole truth about the night that Jessica died. And if Quentin had been lying, maybe King Yayo had been right. That he hadn't been too bright after all. Because in Yayo's words, quote, you have to be a real dumb black man to burn up a white girl in the state of Mississippi. By the time that Quentin had been arrested, he had admitted to the police. He had lied. He had been with Jessica the night of her death, and he hadn't left her at 11 a.m. that morning like he originally stated. It 
rubbed investigators the wrong way, especially since on tape that was shown to the jury, Quentin had taken his right hand and, quote, sworn on his mama that he had last seen Jessica on the morning of December 6th, and certainly not after it had gotten dark. Before Paul Rowlett from the DOJ got involved, the rough timeline of the night that police had formulated was this. At 5.30 p.m., Jessica's phone was pinging off a cell tower that covered Cortland, and we know that she was in town because of the video surveillance that showed her at the M&M. At 6.30, she was in a new cell tower area that surfaced Batesville, just a few miles away. And by 7.30, she would be in the area where she would die. And at 8.04, her cell phone turned off for its final time because it succumbed to the temperatures from the car fire. When it comes to this case, a lot of it hinges on what was discovered when Paul Rowlett took a second, deeper glance into just what all the surveillance tapes and cell phone towers tell us about the night of December 6th. But it should be pointed out that, much like Quinton did when he was presented with evidence that he had lied, the prosecution, they changed details to match their own stories. But let me tell you what Paul Rowlett discovered in his deep dive into cell phone towers and surveillance tapes, and the story that the towers and tapes presented to the jury. The story as Quinton told it was this. He met up with Jessica around 5 or 5.30, then drove to Batesville and got Taco Bell for dinner around 6.30 with her. They drove back to his house and smoked weed in the driveway until 7.30. That was the last he saw of her before carrying on with the rest of his night. Here's the story as the prosecution presented it, with the tapes and towers intertwining to support each other. The Clarion Ledger reported it contemporaneously and incredibly detailed, so let's dive in. Between 11.05 a.m. and 5.29 p.m., Jessica is home. Quentin is texting her, I need you, to which Jessica responds, what you need? Some lovin', he replies. She answers, oh lord, can't. Between 2.21 p.m. and 4.23 p.m., though, her phone is silent. Lisa, her mother, says that Jessica was taking a nap. At 4.23 p.m., Quentin calls and wakes Jessica up. Likewise, on his phone, though, at 3.24 p.m. between or over to 4.15 p.m., records show that Jaquita Jackson, Quentin's then-girlfriend in Monroe, Louisiana, is trying to contact him to get him to send her money so that she can come visit him in Cortland. At 4.21 to 5.34 p.m., Quentin's phone shows that he's at home. Between 4.23 p.m. and 4.29 p.m., Jessica is trying to reach Lakeisha Meyer, but her phone is out of minutes. Between 4.32 p.m. and 4.36 p.m., Jessica tells Quentin via text that she will go get something to eat with him if he pays for it. At the same time, she's still trying to reach Lakeisha. At 4.59 p.m., there's a 33-second phone call between Jessica and Quentin. At 5.08 to 5.11 p.m., Quentin can be seen on security video walking to Eminem wearing a red outfit. He paces around inside and stands outside, but he doesn't make a purchase. At 5.12 p.m., he walks south. It is dark out. At 5.20 p.m., he calls Jessica, and it appears from the length of the call that she doesn't answer, but she calls him right back. Between 5.24 and 5.30 p.m., security surveillance shows Jessica is at the M&M. She talks with someone off screen. She picks up a penny. She goes inside and makes a purchase. 
She comes out and pumps gas. At 5.29 p.m., both cameras and phone records show Jessica making a call to Quinton. She pulls out of the M&M and heads south down US 51. At 5.34 p.m., Quinton calls Jessica back. This is the last call that he will make for the next 48 minutes. He told investigators in an interview in January 2016 that he was calling her to come pick him up at his house. At 6.01 p.m., Jessica's phone shows that she is on her way to Batesville. Between 6.04 and 6.10 at 6.11 p.m., Jessica's phone shifts to the towers that cover the area of Batesville that include Taco Bell, which is where Quinton told investigators that they ate dinner that night. At 6.17 p.m., Quinton calls his sister La Quinta. Phone data shows that he and Jessica leave the Taco Bell area and they head back south towards Cortland. Phone switches towers during the call. It's the only call or text by Quinton between 5.34 and 7.42 p.m. Between 6.22 and 6.25 p.m., Jessica is still trying to reach LaKesha. At 6.30 p.m., cell site data shows that the two arrived back in Cortland around that time. Quinton says that they went back to his house and his mother's white suburban is at the house. They are in the area where he admits to investigators that he had sex with Jessica which is right behind the house, but can't be seen from the house. Jessica's phone is also registering her just south of the M&M, which is the same area that Quinton described. Quinton's house, it should be noted, is only 60 yards away from the M&M. Quinton tells investigators that during this time, the two are smoking marijuana in Jessica's car. At 6.41 p.m., Jessica is still trying to reach Lakesha. At 6.48 p.m., Jessica makes the last call that she will ever make to her mother. The call lasts 76 seconds. Her mother says that there's no background noise and no music, which she found unusual, leading her to believe that Jessica was with someone. By Quinton's admission, he and Jessica are together at this point. Between 6.49 and 7.26 p.m., neither Quinton nor Jessica are using their phones. During the time between 6.55 and 7.41 p.m., Five different women are trying to reach Quinton. He doesn't answer any of them. One of those is Chiquita Jackson saying, quote, oh, well, presumably because she can't get in touch with him about coming to visit. At seven o'clock, immediately, some children put a freezer pizza in the microwave, smoking up the whole house. Cortland and Pope Fire Departments respond to a call of a possible structure fire at the home of Julia Chambers. No relation to Jessica, but she is a relative of Quinton. At 7.10 p.m., a vehicle can be seen leaving Talis's Quinton's residence. He tells investigators that it's his Uncle Sammy. At 7.26 p.m., headlights appear and leave the driveway next to Quinton's house, the area where he and Chambers were, according to the earlier timeline. Security video is too dark and grainy to see what kind of car it is or who is even driving, but investigators point out that the woman who lives there is at work, and Quinton's sister is actually inside the M&M store at the time. At 7.29 p.m., according to video, Quinton's mother's vehicle leaves the house. She goes to M&M, where she will stay for around 20 minutes. At 7.30 p.m., Cortland and Pope Fire Departments are back in their stations from the house microwave pizza fire. At 7.30 p.m. as well, Jessica's cell phone patterns have shifted dramatically west. Then, she is on the scene of Heron Road, where she would later be found burned. At 7.42 p.m., Quinton's phone, quote, wakes up. He calls Jessica and leaves a voicemail. 
Then he follows up with a text that says, Bay, my friend is coming over tonight. I'll call you tomorrow. Good night, sweet dreams. Quinton would later tell investigators that he was letting Jessica know that a girlfriend was coming over and he named an in-town girlfriend who's never been publicly identified. When questioned if that girlfriend could confirm his alibi, he changed his story and he said that he was actually talking about Chiquita Jackson down in Louisiana. At 7.46 p.m., Quinton calls Chiquita and tells her that he's walking to his sister's house to borrow her Tahoe. Jessica's keys would later be found in a yard along that route. Quinton's cell data shows that no communication to ask his sister if he can use her car, which investigator says he's only borrowed once before when he took it to wash for her. That never happened. At 7.46 between 8 p.m., Quinton's phone is silent again. At 7.50 to 7.52 p.m., a vehicle can be seen on Eminem security video pulling in to Quinton's driveway to a storage shed, and it remains there for a minute and 42 seconds. Quinton tells FBI agents in an early interview that he keeps a five-gallon gas can in that shed. Neither a driver nor a tag can be seen. At 7.52 p.m., the vehicle leaves the driveway. At 8 p.m., a vehicle matching the description of Quinton's sister's SUV can be seen on Eminem video heading towards Batesville at a high rate of speed. Quinton tells investigators in a later interview that it, quote, could be him going to get a green dot card to send Chiquita down in Louisiana so she can come for a visit. At 8.04 p.m., Jessica's phone's last communications ever with the cell phone tower take place. Investigators say that it's at this time that it shut off when it got too hot. Between 8.15 and 8.23 p.m., cell phone data confirms that Quinton was going to a Piggly Wiggly and he arrives at a Fred's to buy a cash card. He allegedly calls Jackson during this time. Investigators say that he calls Chiquita five times between 8 p.m. and 8.23 p.m., though he never makes calls to her between 4.25 p.m. and 7.46 p.m. In the surveillance video from the Fred store, Quinton is seen wearing the red outfit outfit from earlier, but without a jacket. At 8.26 p.m., Quinton purchases the green dot card. 8.57 p.m., Quinton shows back up on camera at Eminem, and this time he has on white shoes, jeans, a white shirt, and a new lighter colored jacket. He later tells investigators that he took a bath before he changed his clothes. It's Around this time, supposedly while at the M&M, that Quinton first hears about what happened to Jessica. Despite having spent most of the night with her, Quinton doesn't make any move to text or call or otherwise reach out to her. And within the next day, he deleted all text, all calls, and even her number from his phone, something that he actually admitted to investigators later on. Now... All of that, combined with the initial lies, the backtracking, the cell phone pings, the strange outfit changes, and of course deleting all the texts and calls between the two of them, things don't look great for Quentin. The optics are bad, and especially with what all the prosecution is suggesting. But the defense had a few outlying questions of their own to ask, because given what an expert that Powell Rollett was supposed to be, wasn't it interesting how Jessica had a Verizon phone and Quinton had an AT&T phone? And the fact that the AT&T phone couldn't have its location data retrieved like Jessica's. In fact, what a coincidence that it was 
all of the cell phone tracking, and it was actually only for Jessica's phone. Interesting, too, how when investigators caught back up with Quentin after their first interviews with him, it had been 11 months since the night in question. I guess it was just a simple thing for the investigators to overlook. Because as they put it, never mind that memory can be a fickle form of judgment. Never mind that investigators didn't look any further into the claims that Derek Holmes gave them that he had, quote, been at home rubbing his mother's feet at the time that Jessica was burning. They simply took him and his mother at their word. Never mind that you can't actually see the tags of the car entering the TELUS driveway at 7.26 p.m., and you certainly can't see if it is Quentin driving the car. Never mind the fact that Paul Rowlett, this DOJ intelligence analyst, even admitted on the stand that he simply shifted the cell phone tower data half a mile to the east in order to better fit the prosecution's presentation of the data, all in the name of accounting for some half mile of discrepancy between the actual location someone was and the cell phone tower's guess of where you were. And certainly never mind that when unshifting that half mile, Jessica's 6.48 p.m. cell phone call to her mother connected to an entirely different cell phone tower one located in Pope. And that cell phone tower didn't cover the area of the TELUS home where she was supposed to be, much less the driveway that the prosecution claimed that Jessica was making the call from. But really, never mind all of that. It was on all of this, though, that the prosecution rested their case. Towers and tapes, with some questionable physical evidence thrown in for good measure as well. For the utter circus that this trial was, it shouldn't be a shock that the jury deliberations were just as much of a circus after the fact. Despite everything speaking both to guilt or innocence, the October 2007 trial against Quentin Tillis was declared to be a mistrial at the end because of confusion over jury instructions, and I wish I was fucking kidding. According to the Clarion Ledger, Judge Chatham was forced to label the verdict a mistrial due to jury confusion. Quote, the instructions said that a guilty verdict had to be unanimous, but didn't directly say that about a not guilty verdict. Officials said it appeared the jury thought that, since they couldn't unanimously decide that Quentin was guilty, that made him not guilty. In reality, though, the jury was split seven to five. In October 2018, Quinton appeared for a second trial. Though the defense and prosecution shared much of the same evidence, things were also a bit different. For one, DA John Champion faced allegations of misconduct from one of Quinton's lawyers. According to Oxygen, Darla Palmer filed a motion and an affidavit with explosive accusations of, quote, numerous ethical violations, prosecutorial misconduct, and potential criminal violations against John Champion. The basis of the motion and supporting affidavit was that Champion allegedly tried to pressure another client of Darla Palmer's, a man named Jalen Asir Matthews Cowdell, who was charged with capital murder. Champion tried to pressure him to testify that Jessica Chambers used to refer to Quentin as Eric. 
On April 5th, 2018, Champion is said to have met with Claude in the local jail without Palmer's knowledge. During their meeting and after, Claude failed to offer incriminating information. And the affidavit claims that Champion said, quote, Jalen, what about this? Quentin's nickname was Eric, right? After called, said that he didn't know, Champion allegedly said, quote, okay, let me help you out. Quentin told you that Jessica called him Eric, right? Quentin told you that Jessica called him Eric sometimes because that's the name Quentin told her when they first met. In the courtroom, things were just as dramatic. Doctors argued back and forth about whether or not Jessica had an inability or just difficulty to speak on the night that she died. A doctor, William Hickerson, who's a physician with expertise in burn patients and who testified in the first trial, revealed that Jessica actually had bruises on her front torso that weren't caused by the fire. This seemingly assisted the prosecution's angle that Quentin had somehow overpowered Jessica before she died. But then why hadn't this doctor reported them in the first trial? And why hadn't these bruises been accounted for in the autopsy? There was a new witness as well, Sherry Flowers, a local woman who claims that she was, quote, flagged down by a young man on the side of the road on Main Street in Cortland, who told her that he wanted a lift to check on his aunt, Julia Chambers, who lived about a mile down the road. Sherry testified that this was just after dark. And a reminder, Julia Chambers is the woman whose house called for a microwave pizza fire on the night that Jessica died. And Julia Chambers is Quentin's aunt. Main Street also, if you'll remember, is where Jessica's keys were found and where the prosecution claims Quentin was walking after leaving Jessica's car on Heron Road before he would return in his sister's Tahoe with his five-gallon gas can to commit the murder. Hell, not even with all that, Judge Chatham almost arrested someone in court for sneaking in their cell phone and snapping a picture of the jury that they then posted on Facebook. In the closing arguments, though, that might have been the biggest switch in the prosecution's tactics. They argued that this time around that, quote, first responders misheard Jessica Chambers' dying declaration. They said that she was trying to say, Tellus killed her. But because she was so badly burned, first responders heard Eric. With the extent of her injuries, the other confusion about how she pronounced her name to Cole Healy, if you'll remember, he thought she said Jessica Thainbers and then realized that she was Jessica Chambers, and along with the general disagreement about whether she was or wasn't speaking clearly, it was a plausible tactic. Plausibility seems to have been the prosecution's main form of attack here. But it wasn't plausible enough, because once again... The second trial in the murder of Jessica Chambers was labeled a mistrial, this time in October of 2018. And this time, the jury was actually completely split. Six innocent and six guilty. As things stand now, Quentin very well might face a third trial for Jessica's murder, since they've yet to run up against the threat of double jeopardy. However, he's currently serving the 10-year sentence he received for using Mandy Sow's debit card after her as-yet-unsolved murder in Monroe, Louisiana. 
and the town of Cortland, they're left still wondering, who killed Jessica Chambers? Along with that one, let's get into some of the other questions that surround this barbaric and baffling case. Question one, what role did racism play in Jessica's life and her death? We know that her parents didn't approve of her dating black men, so could this have set the events of her death into motion? How involved in the drug scene was Jessica? Was she only selling weed, or had she delved into dealing harder substances like some have reported? Was Jessica involved in gangs more than just being a gang member's girlfriend? Could her death have been orchestrated as a hit of sorts? Did Jessica's friends from the rough period that she went through before she went to Leah's house, did they have any insider knowledge about her death? Did they know anything about what led to it? Who were the people who thought Jessica was snitching? Who threatened Jessica's life in the weeks before she died? Was Jessica ever an informant for the Panola County Police? Where really was Jessica between 6.30 when she arrived back in Cortland with Quentin and when the call came in about her car being on fire at 8.04? How had Jessica gotten into the woods during the attack since the firefighters saw her walk out of them while she was burning? How badly injured were her vocal cords? Did Jessica ever say the name Eric or Derek or was it just a domino effect of someone on the scene thinking that she had said it, which then convinced others that that was what they must have heard as well. If anything, what exactly did Jessica say when she was discovered by the firefighters? Who was the man seen walking up to the crime scene that the firefighters simply shoot away? Why did Panola County move Jessica's car from the crime scene that night? And what evidence was lost in making that decision? Why didn't Panola County search the surrounding area more in depth, knowing Jessica was in the woods? Why didn't they search beyond the fence, knowing Jessica had come out of the woods? Why was no rape kit performed if the prosecution was adamant that Jessica had fought off Quentin from having sex that night? Why weren't the supposed bruises on her torso reported during the first trial? Did Jerry King actually find Jessica's keys on Main Street, or were they planted there? Why did Jerry King change his story about how he handled the keys from placing them in the basket of his daughter's stroller to then giving them to her to play with? Was it a ruse that was developed to explain why the DNA was so muddled together after the fact? Was Jerry King used by police to fabricate the evidence of the keys? Why couldn't Quentin's DNA be distinguished from the three other sets of DNA on the keys? And if Jerry King had touched the keys... Why was his DNA labeled so inconclusively? Who did the other two sets of DNA on the keys belong to, especially since Panola County swears up and down that they took DNA from everyone that they interviewed? Who could they possibly have not interviewed? Was it actually a set of clothes that had been burned to scraps by Jessica's car that were discovered, or were they just unrelated scraps of fabric? If they were Jessica's clothes, why were they the only items from the scene said to be covered in gasoline? Who did the two lighters found at the scene belong to? Why was the back of Jessica's cell phone removed from her phone? Why didn't anyone ever search Quentin's shed? And to that effect, why didn't anyone take Quentin's gas can into evidence? 
why didn't anyone check out Derek Holmes's alibi more thoroughly? And why was he afforded the luxury of having it just be accepted without question? Was Derek Holmes stalking Jessica? Who was the man seen on the side of the road by Sherry Flowers? And was it actually Quentin? Was it the same man from the scene of Jessica's attack that the firefighter sent away? Did Quentin actually use his sister's car that night? Who was the car seen entering into the Telus driveway and then quickly departing? Why did Quentin really change his clothes that night? Why was Paul Rowlett allowed to present cell phone evidence that had literally been manipulated by a half mile to fit the prosecution's theory of Quentin's guilt? What motive would Quentin even have for killing Jessica? Who is Eric? Who's Derek? Did Jessica really name her killer that night? Who in the town of 500 people in Cortland, who really knows what happened to Jessica Chambers and why are they staying silent? Who murdered Jessica Chambers? It's been six years this fall since Jessica Chambers was attacked and murdered in one of the most brutal ways imaginable. Six years and the people of Cortland, Mississippi still don't know who killed the bubbly blonde cheerleader known for flashing I love you signs to the friends and family in her life. After six years, two grueling trials and two equally frustrating verdicts of mistrials, needless to say, Cortland is a town on the edge. Did Quentin Tellis actually murder Jessica Chambers in such a savage fashion? Or is her murder being swept under the rug by a DA in a sheriff's department who simply don't want to admit that they have the wrong guy? Who in Cortland knows the answer to who murdered Jessica Chambers? One resident of the town, Leon Ross, remarked in the Oxygen documentary about Jessica's case that no matter how the dice fell, no matter what way the verdict was called for Quentin Tellis, the resolution of the case might be, quote, another OJ. The way I see it, this case seems a lot like the wrong man is being played the patsy for a horrific murder that has yet to give both its victim and her loved ones any sort of peace. It's been six years and we're still waiting on justice for Jessica. The delay of that peace and closure only adds to the horror of this case. To whoever is staying silent down in that little town in Mississippi, now is the time to speak. Speak for Jessica. Use the voice that she wasn't able to on December 6th, 2014. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you're liking what you're hearing, please go leave a five-star review and rating for the show over on Apple Podcasts. I will actually not be back here next week, my friends, and I hope you understand and please don't panic. (laughs) Given the utter doozy of the week ahead of us for those of us in the States, I'm going to actually be taking next week off to regroup a little bit. But like I said, don't panic. I will be back here with another case filled with hashtag questions on November 9th. Also, November this year has five Mondays in it. So like, that's just a little part of my justification for just a break to regroup and recalibrate and re-energize. But don't fret though, because 
keep your eyes peeled for a little special something next Monday in place of a new case. I'm not leaving you high and dry completely. There's also the opportunity to be part of the DAW Patreon crew because this week on Friday, October 30th, the monthly Wine and Weirds live stream event will be taking place. This month's topic has an extra sort of bite, so tune in to see what the topic is. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkashellpodcast to see what level might be up your alley of interest. There's a new Patreon level and it only costs $1. You can support DAW and the work that I do here for just $1 a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode and have access to exclusive content on the Patreon. With that said, I'm here to shout out my friend Chelsea Massari for joining the Patreon crew at the $1 level. And I say friend by taking huge liberty with that because now you're a new friend because you're part of the DAW crew. (laughs) This month's calendar of exclusive Patreon content for all of the different levels has been extra amounts of dark as hell. I don't want to spoil anything, but if you're looking to fill the rest of your October with a bit of extra Daw and extra spook, head on over to patreon.com slash darkashellpodcast to check all of it out. While you're waiting for the next episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at darkashellpodcast, all one word, and on Twitter at darkashellpod. Again, that's all one word. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkasshellpodcast at gmail.com, or you can head over to darkasshellpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. I will catch you back here soon enough, November 9th, with another story that's dark as hell.